During a trial, a prosecuting barrister called his first witness to the stand, an elderly grandmother. He approached her and asked the question, Mrs. Smith, do you know me? She responded, yes, I know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you're a little boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, I mean, you manipulate people and you talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot, when actually you haven't got the brains to realize that you'll never amount to much. Yes, I know you. Didn't quite know what to say to this. He was a bit stunned and not knowing what else to do. He pointed across the courtroom at the defense barrister and asked, Mrs. Smith, do you know him? And she again replied, why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Rogers since he was a boy too. He's lazy, overweight. He has a drinking problem. He can't have a normal relationship with anybody since he has the worst legal practice in town. And not to mention the fact that he's cheated on his wife with three different women, one of whom was your wife. Yes, I know Mr. Rogers. The defense barrister nearly died at that point, and the judge beckoned to both QCs to approach the bench, and he leant over and quietly whispered to them, if either of you two idiots ask her if she knows me, I'll send you both to prison. Sometimes questions have the capacity to lay things open. And we can be afraid of asking questions because they do that and they can leave us exposed and open. But unlike the situation that was occurring in that courtroom, which I hope was fictitious, when Jesus asks a question, he doesn't just open things out. John writes in the beginning of his gospel that Jesus comes in grace and truth. And so there's a heart behind what Jesus opens up when Jesus asks questions. And his heart, when he opens things out, when he exposes things, when he helps us to disclose things about ourselves, when he shows us the way we are by his questions, by his actions, by what he does, we need to know that behind what he thinks of us is grace and love, and he's for us, which I think is important. Now, when we think of questions, we don't always think of faith and God and religion. Sometimes we think, well, maybe this is an area where questions aren't allowed. You just have to believe. So maybe it's encouraging to know that the first thing that the Bible records, God saying to man, after man's got it all wrong in Genesis 3, is actually a question. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Now that is actually, if not taken literally geographically, that actually is a very interesting question. Where are you? Could mean, how are you? How is your soul? How is your heart? Where have you got yourself? And so Christians have often pointed to the example of God asking questions. Job is confronted in his experience of God with God asking him a number of questions. Did you put the foundations of the earth in place? God asks Job. And Jesus continues this. Jesus asks around 290 unique questions in the Gospels. Questions like, what are you looking for? 
Why are you looking for me? What do you want me to do for you? Who do people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Why do you ask me about what is good? Why do you call me good? Who appointed you as judge and governor? How long will I have to endure you? Have I been with you for such a long time and you still don't know me? What are you thinking in your hearts? Why do you harbor evil thoughts in your hearts? If you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do good to only those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Do you want to be well? What's your name? How long has this been happening to him? Do you see this woman? Why do you make trouble for her? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single moment to your life? Where's your faith? Do you believe that I can do this? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Do you believe now? Would you like some breakfast? That's another question Jesus asks. Have you hardened your hearts already? It's interesting. And I want to ask this morning, how did Jesus ask questions? How did Jesus go about asking questions? And what types of questions did Jesus ask? Now, I think we could usefully spend the next hour or so. Now, I'm not going to preach for that long. Don't worry. I think we could usefully spend the next 20 minutes or so just focusing on Jesus's questions, even just on one of his questions. There's a huge amount there. And we'll get to that question that was in the reading. But I think Jesus asks questions in three quite broad ways, quite interesting ways. First of all, Jesus asks questions in the form of parables. I'll say more about these things. Then I think Jesus asks conventional questions like we've begun to learn about and we've begun to hear this morning. And then thirdly, I think Jesus raises questions and asks questions with his actions, with his mission, with what he's come to do and what takes place around his life and in his life and at the end of his life and then in his resurrection and in what he does on the cross. So Jesus' parables, Jesus' questions, and Jesus' mission and his actions all raise questions. Well, how do Jesus' questions and his parables and his mission raise questions? Well, every single one of us in this room, every single person has a perspective on the world. In philosophy, we call it a worldview, a way of looking at the world. We each have this way of looking at the world, and we sometimes forget it's there. We're not always aware that it's there, and it shapes everything that we look at and everything that we perceive, and we're not always that aware of it bit like the story of Watson and Sherlock Holmes when they go camping. Sherlock Holmes and Watson go camping, sharing a, a bottle of wine and a good meal. They retire to their tent for the night. At about 3 a.m., Holmes nudges Watson and asks, Watson, look up into the sky. Tell me what you can see. And Watson says, I see millions of stars. Holmes asks, and what does that tell you? Watson replies, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and we are small and insignificant. Horologically, it tells me that it's about 3 a.m. Meteorologically, it tells me that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes responds, someone has stolen our tent. 
<laughs> we all have this underlying set of assumptions and set of ideas, and it shapes the way we look at the world. Sometimes we think about it directly, but usually it's an indirect landscape or grid that we see the world through. And we're all working with answers to four big questions. First of all, there's a question about what reality is. What is the world like? What's the truth about our existence? Is there a God? Is there a spirit? Is it just physical stuff? Are we biomechanical machines? Or is there something more about us as human beings? And then we're working with an answer to the question when we look at the news each evening or in the newspaper or we look at it on our phones and we say, what's wrong with the world? Why do people do this? We're all working with an understanding of what's broken and what's wrong. What is the sorrow that had come into the story or into the world. Tolkien talks about how all stories have a sorrow that are there in the backdrop of a story and somehow that's resolved and somehow that's addressed in a good story. And I think life is a bit like that. We're all working not only with an understanding of some sort of thing that's gone wrong with the world. Maybe we're not loved enough. Maybe we understand it through sociology or psychology. Maybe we understand it through spirituality or some other way. Maybe we just say, well, human beings are messed up and that's as far as we can go with it. We don't have answers to actually what's going on and what's wrong with us, what's wrong with human nature. And then thirdly, we're working with an answer to that, maybe a very pragmatic answer. We say you can't ask these big questions. You can't know what reality is. You can't know what's really wrong with us. And there's certainly no hope beyond just making the best of life that you can. And then fourthly, we're working with a vision of what we hope things will be like in the future, what life would be like if we brought in that solution that we think there is to, or we might not think there is to the problem of what's wrong with people and what's wrong with our world. And all of us see the world through this grid and through this lens. We all have an answer or a set of answers that we're carrying with us. Now, Jesus, in his questions, in his parables, and in his actions, raises questions about this grid, about this lens, about this way that we see the world. Jesus stirs all of these ideas up and all of these things up, and he says, do you see reality as I see it? Do you see what's wrong with us or with what's wrong with people as I see it? Do you know the answer that I'm bringing to it? And do you know the hope that I will give you for the future? Jesus addresses all four of these areas very, very explicitly and directly and clearly. What answers do you work with in these questions? Let's just look briefly at how Jesus raises questions about this grid using parables. Well, in a parable, as we saw, you're drawn into a narrative world. You're drawn into a story. C.S. Lewis said, it's not just, you know, what, somebody said to him, why do you think Christianity is true, Lewis, this great Oxford scholar? Why do you think Christianity is true? And he said, it's not just because I see it. It's also because by it, I see everything else. And maybe part of what he was thinking was, was of the parables and of how they beckon you into a world of values and ethics and a vision of reality and a vision of what human beings are worth. Even a Samaritan could do something like that. Even somebody who nobody would trust would actually turn out to be the good guy. And it reverses our cultural understandings. It, it, it throws everything up in the air. And in this, it draws us into another world in some ways. As Alistair McGrath, the Oxford theologian, says, parables force their hearers, their listeners, to step into a, a, a world where you have to wrestle with the meaning of that story. And Jesus uses parables to raise questions about how we see the world. 
You can't read a parable of Jesus without walking away and thinking a bit about what he was getting at or what he was stirring up. It does stir things up very interestingly. Second way that I think Jesus raises questions is more directly in the form of questions. And we read the example from Luke 10, where Jesus encounters this expert in the law. And I'm only going to stay within the first two or three verses of this. I'm not going to go into a discussion of the parable of the Good Samaritan, because I just want you to see something in the way Jesus asks this guy a question. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when I became a Christian at university, I was studying philosophy, few years ago now, and, and I suddenly wanted to tell everybody about Jesus and about what he'd done in my life and how he'd fixed me and sorted me out and mended me. And I was really excited to tell people just because I felt like I'd discovered what so many of my friends I thought were looking for. And I was really excited to have those conversations and saw a number of my friends trust in Jesus and start to walk with him. And the question that I would often pray that people would ask me is, you know, if only, Lord, I could get onto a bus or I could get onto a train. And, you know, I, I don't like to you know, be too strong in a, the way I talk to people. I like to be gentle. And if only, Lord, I could sit next to somebody on the airplane who would turn to me and say, what must I do to be saved? Or how can I know God? Have you discovered God? Tell me how I can know God. You know, it's a sort of evangelist's sort of prayer. Lord, give me somebody who's asking these questions about how they can have a relationship with God, how they can know God. And so Jesus gets a guy who asks pretty much this question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? What must I do? Now, Jesus, the master evangelist, how does he reply? Ah, he doesn't seem to get out. There are four spiritual laws, or there are two ways to live, or here's a gospel outline, or here's a a brief understanding of of what you must do, or you must come on our Alpha course. Now, all of these things are wonderful, but Jesus doesn't seem to use any of these things. And yet, Jesus is really good at reaching out to people. So, has Jesus fluffed it? Has Jesus messed up? Has Jesus made a mistake here? Well, maybe, maybe not. Jesus pushes this guy in a different direction for a few moments. Jesus asks him a question. He says, What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? And then it goes on and he answers and then he wants to justify himself after Jesus has told him what he needs to do. And then Jesus tries again to get to him with a story. But before Jesus opens up the parable and the story with him, he's already tried to open things up with this question. Why has Jesus approached writing about the law? Writing about Torah, why? Well, because for the teacher in the law, the expert in the law, his grid of reality is all framed around and comes from the law and the prophets, the Torah. He's a Jew. He's an expert in the law. His authority source, his center of, his, of the way he understands the world and reality, where he goes to for understanding his worldview, his philosophy, his perspective, is Torah. And Jesus knows that if this guy is going to hear what Jesus is going to try to communicate, Jesus needs to open things up a bit so he can actually see from his perspective. Jesus is stepping into his world and is opening things up for him. Now, 
I think most of us, in our perspective on the world, have cornerstone ideas, key principles, key ideas that we distill our perspectives down to, quite often grouped around symbols or grouped around visualizations. And all of us have these key ideas, these key assumptions that govern everything that we look at and shape everything that we see. We're not always aware of them, like um, Watson and Holmes, you know, wrestling with the tent being there or not being there. We're not always aware of them. But Jesus takes this guy back to his underlying beliefs, his underlying assumptions. Now, it's obviously a spiritual thing to do if Jesus is doing it, but it's very, very interesting, isn't it? The man is pushed back, and Jesus is trying to open a door through asking his question. I don't know what you're putting your hope in this morning. I don't know what you live for. I don't know what you need. But maybe Jesus would say to some of us, go back to some of that stuff and just ask some questions about whether those things are really an ultimate hope. They might be a good hope, but they may not be an ultimate hope. They may not be the true hope that Jesus wants for you. T.S. Eliot, so struck by Jesus asking questions, writes a poem called Choruses from the Rock glimpsing that Jesus' questions hold an idea or an assumption up in the air. Now, with this guy, as we see the story with the teacher of, of the law, when Jesus asks this question, how do you understand the law, this guy's perspective is held up in the air, isn't it? His assumption about the law and about what the law means, because he's kind of treating God a bit mechanically. He thinks he can just keep the rules and be right with God, and Jesus says it's actually about something deeper. It's about a relationship. It's about something living. When Jesus' question holds an assumption up in the air, all the wildness of human nature and motivation and our reason why we really secretly ask things, when Jesus' questions come, everything about us kind of gets opened up and falls out. All the wildness of human nature is let out of the bag. T.S. Eliot, in his poem, Choruses from the Rock, describes a community and Jesus as the stranger coming and approaching that community and just asking a couple of questions to that community. Here's some of the poem. And now you live dispersed on ribbon roads and no man knows or cares who is his neighbor unless his neighbor makes too much disturbance, but all dash to and fro in motor cars, familiar with the roads and settled nowhere. Much to cast down, much to build, much to restore. I've given you the power of choice, but you only alternate between futile speculation and unconsidered action. And the wind will say, here were a decent godless people, their only monument, the asphalt road and a thousand lost golf balls. But when the stranger says, what is the meaning of the city? Do you huddle close together because you love each other? What will you answer? We dwell together to make money from each other, or this is a community. Oh, my soul, be prepared for the coming of the stranger. Be prepared for him who knows how to ask questions. And to tell you a story of a friend of mine called Tom Terrence. Tom Terrence was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama. As a high school student in the mid-60s, he opposed the desegregation of the public schools, and he eventually joined the Ku Klux Klan. 
At that time, the Ku Klux Klan was described by the FBI as the most violent right-wing terrorist organization in America. Now, finding the um, FBI, um, so finding the Ku Klux Klan a little bit um, liberal, he joined this radical fringe called the White Knights. Tom was on one, at one point on the top of the FBI most wanted list, and until his capture, he was the most wanted man in Mississippi. After a bloody shootout with the police and with the FBI, in which his partner was killed and he nearly died, Tom was arrested, and he was eventually sentenced to 30 years in the Mississippi State Penitentiary, one of the worst prisons in America at that time. A few months later, he relieved himself of the accommodation offered by the prison service and escaped from prison, later apprehended by the FBI in another bloody shootout in which one of his accomplices was killed. When Tom was in prison, he started by reading his way through Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, and all of the other far-right literature that he could get hold of. And then he decided he'd pick up a Bible and have a look in a Bible to see if there was anything in there that would help him and would justify his ideas. And while reading in Mark's gospel, Mark's eyewitness testimony about Jesus and his life, Tom experienced an extraordinary moment. He read in Mark chapter 8, 36, the question, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? He subsequently renounced the clan, their racism, and his own racism and his own hatred. He turned over his life to Jesus Christ, devoted himself to serving Christ and promoting the love and the peace that Jesus Christ alone can give. He asked the FBI agents to come back and he apologized to them for risking their lives and a number of them came to faith as well. He was actually ended up serving in prison for eight years but now he heads up the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C. And it's no exaggeration at all to say he's the gentlest man I've ever met. Something extraordinary has happened to him. Jesus' questions can take a life and turn it round. His questions have behind them a heart of love, a heart of grace. Do you know that love? Do you know that grace? I'm sure you know how the questions can open you out and can show you and to show me how I really am. We've all got skeletons in our closets, but do you know what it's like to have that vulnerability, that exposure, that disclosure met with love and grace and truth? Now, the last way that I want to talk about how Jesus raises questions is in his mission. In John's Gospel, in John's Gospel, in chapter 12, we read Jesus being asked about his mission. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. 
Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for a judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. But when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. See, Jesus wants to engage with how you see the world, what you think reality is, what you think is wrong with us as people, what you think the answer to that is, what what the answer is that you use to deal with the things you struggle with. And he also wants to talk to us and to engage with us and be in a conversation with us and, and be in a relationship with us ultimately about what answers we work with, about what hope we live for, about why we live, about what we're geared towards. Every single one of us has a perspective. And I think Jesus in his questions, in his parables, and in his mission, raises questions about how we see the world. And when he opens things out with these extraordinary questions, with these extraordinary parables and with what he does, he's really opening up to us the gospel, the hope of God who says, yes, I am here. If you want to know what reality is, look at Jesus. I'm showing myself in him. If you want to know what's wrong with the world, Jesus will tell you. He'll show you on the cross what he had to die for, that there's a brokenness that has entered into this world, and we all struggle with it. We call it sin. And Jesus is paying the price and making amends for that, being our ransom for us, as we sang. And then Jesus himself is the answer to that. It's not a mechanical answer. It's a relationship, a new relationship with God, an ongoing hope, an ongoing answer, an answer that comes in the form of not a thing or an idea or a principle in a book, but a person who's a friend who walks with you. Do you know him? Do you know him? What answers do you live with? If you forgive me, I want to just have a moment now where I offer the same prayer that I prayed when I trusted Jesus. My prayer was simple. I said, God, I think you're there. I think you're real. But I don't know you, and I want to know you. I know that you're pure. I think think you're real and pure, but I know I'm not. I know I need to be cleaned up. I know you need to fix me. Will you make me new? And will you have relationship with me? Will you walk with me? And I prayed that. And that night, it was the last day I smoked drugs. It was the last time I was, was pulling on all those other threads of life that we think are going to be satisfying, but are not, ultimately. That night, my life changed. We went to a school reunion, my wife and I, um, a couple of weeks ago, and one of my friends quietly said, um, one of my friends I hadn't seen since school, he said, it doesn't seem like he's the same guy that I was at school with. I'd been expelled and sort of suspended from five or six schools. My poor parents went bald and gray and 
old. <laughs> I think I was part of the cause of that for them. But maybe you'd be in a place, maybe some would be here, would be wanting to say, actually, yeah, I, I need that relationship. I need that answer. I need that hope in me 